are listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode number 14. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Jelena Levin and Pontus Böckmanns. Sziasztok! Hey, Sziasztok! Hello! Hi! Hello! Okay, we all survived episode number 13. Yay! Surprise, surprise! Let's see if we survive this one. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. we're, gonna, we're gonna keep yeah. going, guys. Yeah. <laughs> well, we have, we have some nice suggestions uh, that, that came in. So, uh, we have nice ways to adapt if, if that's, that's a key to survival. Mm. <laughs> Something about evolution. Yeah, we do. Sure. Yeah, we do oh, anything yes. for money or for likes. <laughs> that's that, that, not me. <laughs> yeah, especially with a lot of money we're making yeah. uh, with this podcast. Or uh, so freaking rich, we now have our own mansions and swimming yeah. pools. You name it. Great. Yeah, mansions. By the way, have you seen the invention of lying? Yes, by Ricky Gervais. Yeah. It's good. Yes, good. So good. So good. Every time a mention is mentioned, <laughs> that 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 film, that movie comes to my mind right away. Right. Uh, how he made up God. That's that's probably funny. how it happened too. Yeah. The man in the sky. Yeah. I don't really think there was a time in the in human history when people didn't know how to tell a lie. No. And didn't, no, no, didn't no. know the concept no, of lying at all. No. no. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder, so, okay, so there's like, um, a com- sometimes on and off, I've, I've got a conversation with my friends that I'm having, you know, h- how are we different from animals? Of course, we're different in many ways, but I wonder if lying, being able to lie is one of the major no, ones as well. But you I've can seen tick. research, I can't remember now, animals about can't. animals deceiving their other uh, animals. <laughs> Uh, okay, well, so you mean like when a predator hunts the prey, they have to like hide and whatever and pretend? I can't pretend? remember what animal it was, but it was something about food indicating to the other that here is food, and when everybody ran over there, the, the first animal ran to where the food actually was. Yeah. Ah, oh, that's Yeah, great. and the, that false, the false alarms and things yeah. like that, when uh, birds are making, making the, th- the, the, the noise sure of... I'm sure the first uh, bacteria... Stressful. to the second bacteria. <laughs> yeah. So those three bacteria walk into the pub. <laughs> you know, you know. Probably the whole thing started when sex ah, came into the okay, picture. Okay, so it wasn't the bacteria. It was the next oh, yeah, step well, there. It wasn't a bacteria, but um, <laughs> sometime after the bacteria, the first eukaryotes who started sexual reproduction, there might have been I'm something sure like right. like a, a quarrel. Yeah. Yeah. Look, okay. You cheated on me, you <laughs> bastard. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay, so yeah, I think we've figured this one out. <laughs> well, that yeah, very productive discussion. Uh we should write a PhD paper now. <laughs> well, uh, actually doing science is not only about doing PhDs. No offense to to anyone who's who's doing a PhD, but um many people are doing brilliant science at a lower level as well and um unfortunately understanding understanding science is another thing especially the concept of of critical thinking and skepticism it's not always applied by researchers and uh, i think we're going to be talking about this very soon in an interview but not the one that's on here today mm. so yeah we've got we've got uh, quite a bit of feedback keep them coming Uh, please. Um, the interesting part was that, uh, of course, uh, we're going to be covering all the events going on, that, all the events that we know of uh, going on in Europe, uh, but not in that much length um, as we used to. We had a comment regarding that. And uh, fortunately, Annie, who who is the one uh, writing us about that, seemed to be happy with the way we did it on episode 13. So... Hope you like this episode too, Annie. And we had another very nice uh, letter from someone on the contact form on the website. 
Yeah, so that that letter or email came from uh, Pablo um, as a response to one of our news uh, items pieces. Um, uh, It's a follow-up on the story of the cancellation of the Masters on Homeopathy in the University of Barcelona. Thank you. Thank you, Pablo, a lot. That's that's. That, it's been a great uh, feedback, and um, he, he, he also provided us with a website uh, or a um, blog post from someone who followed the whole um, shenanigans. I think there is a, a real shift that's that's happening now in uh, people's mind about homeopathy, um, and it's, it's happening due to the fact that people are more educated about it, and then they've got better information, better facts about homeopathy. Um, And uh, he did mention specifically uh, Boiron and how Boiron is trying to regain those territories that he's losing. Well, uh, of course, they're there to make money and if they don't, you know, they don't keep their face, then they'll lose business and it's it's all just, come on, it's, it's plain and simple. So this is why I'd like to repeat my call for uh, for anyone who knows uh, a bit more about Boiron. I'm pre- preparing a segment on uh, Boiron for the next episode based on these news. But uh, if, if anyone wants to help me uh, find the proper uh, information, especially on uh, French news outlets and uh, web pages, it would be very much appreciated. But I'd like to mention another person who's also in Spain, apparently. Uh, his name is Bob. And he was the one uh, drawing our attention in the first place to the University of Barcelona uh, scraping homeopathy masters. And and he said that um, he'll keep an eye on things and whenever, if, if, if something comes up, he'll let us know. So that's very much appreciated. And uh, thanks very much, Bob, again. Everyone else, please, if you have something to share with us, let us know and... Uh, f- you know where to find us. Yeah, you can uh, always find us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu. You can also email us, of course. Uh, it's info at theesp.eu. Um, and w- if you go on our website, which is theesp.eu, you can fill out um, a uh, form uh, to get in touch with us. And, of course, you can like us on Facebook. Uh, please engage with us in any way and share our posts. Thank you. Yay. There's another thing, though. Eggman. We mentioned him several times. Um, And what's more, he recorded once a short promo for uh, their event up in Glasgow, uh, Skeptically. He had a nice idea, and we're still going to have to discuss it and uh, how we can make it happen. But it's a very nice idea, so stay tuned for that. It concerns the events, and in the coming week, there are going to be lots of events around Europe again. Starting on the 17th of March, uh, that is a Thursday, there are going to be two, actually, that we know of. One up in Edinburgh, so go Scotland, uh, now that we mentioned the Glasgow Skeptics, and the other one in Ghent. The next one is on the 19th of uh, March, which is Saturday, and it's actually a mini-conference in Cambridge called ThinkCon 2016. Um, so it's free to, to attend, so please, uh, we've also linked the Eventbrite page for this conference. Please go on there if you are uh, near or around Cambridge. Um, they've got a variety of speakers there and a variety of topics. I'm just looking at the program right now and to, the talks are pretty exciting. One of the talks is called Musical Vegetables. Um, another one is, a, is for Arsenic. So, hey, come on. This is Sounds quite exciting <laughs> stuff. <laughs> and Katorni. Uh, yeah, so it's a fun, fun thing to do. Um, Think Con on the 19th of March in Cambridge. And the day after that, uh, the very busy skeptics in Göteborg, that's Gothenburg, Sweden, have their annual meeting. And after that, they have a social skeptics in the pub. Wasn't there an annual meeting of the Göteborg skeptics no, a couple of weeks ago? That was Uppsala, I believe. Oh, sorry. We, we have six, <laughs> we have six uh, local chapters, so they all have to have their yearly meetings. 
Okay. How how many how many are you involved in? Uh, I'm only involved in the south of Sweden, the Skåne one. Okay. Is there a Malmo skeptics in the uh, in the pub? Yeah, but per se. Um, that isn't called well, that. Well, we the, the Skåne is the name of the Skåne is the name of the local chapter, and we do every other month in Malmo and every other month in Lund. Okay. And we will try to start in Helsingborg as well, which is a little bit further to the north. We had a board meeting uh, yesterday, actually, where we uh, discussed that. Yeah, go, Swedish skeptics, go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of politics. 21st of March, there'll be a Glasgow skeptics in the pub, and they'll be discussing science denial and uh, radiocarbon dating with Leonard Sim. It's when you're dating... Radio carbon. <laughs> it's it's very sad. It's like uh, there's like a cartoon. That is so lonely when you when you when you you have nobody else to date but radio carbon. <laughs> but there, there is a there is as Jelena started to say there is a cartoon called Carbon Dating that makes that joke. Have you seen it? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, cut yeah. that up. Actually, I have to tell you that I used to do some research, uh, and it was into amino acid resumization dating. Did you hook up with anyone? Oh, amino acids, <laughs> big time. Wow, <laughs> love them. And would you believe it? Göteborg skeptics again. I think this is a world record. They have another skeptics in the pub on the twenty-third, just three days after the first, the the, the other one. And this is okay. Do you know why that is? They, it's because they have their traditional full full moon pub. They always have it on a full moon. Okay, so even if just three days beforehand there was a skeptics in the pub, you can't. A full moon pub has to yes, happen. Yes, you can't keep them away on the full moon. They go crazy. Okay, you know uh, there are rumors about Swedish people. I deny everything. I had nothing uh, to do with it. Like, liking alcohol, pretty <laughs> <laughs> very much. <laughs> I had no idea where you get that from. But I, I think it's more the Finnish. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I think I think it's a Nordic thing. Yeah. It's I a Nordic so. thing. So yeah. It's yeah. Very, Especially with all those all those those very long. It's dark very nights. cold up oh, here. We yeah. have to keep warm. Russian influence <laughs> oh, yeah. as well, yeah, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, as a, as a well-educated skeptic, you do know that alcohol doesn't make you warmer. It just makes you yeah. feel warmer, and actually, it makes you lose temperature. Yeah more quickly but you, but you die happier so. <laughs> okay. yeah you die happier you die earlier but happier yeah okay this is what we have lined up for the next week again please keep them coming and don't forget if you need the information more info on the actual places and the actual skeptics in the pub or other events go to the website the esp.eu and follow the menu item that says events in europe Thanks very much, guys. Thank you. I think it's about time to move on to an interview with a wonderful person who's uh, one of the most widely respected skeptics around Europe. He's uh, Willem Batts. On every other episode, we interview a person representing an organization or project, either from a certain European country or stretching across borders. Our guest today is Professor Willem Betts, a Flemish physician and Professor Emeritus at the University of Brussels, where he used to be head of the Department for Teaching General Practice. He's a leading skeptic in Belgium and a founding member of the Belgian skeptic organization SCAP, where he is currently acting as vice president. He's done extensive work as an investigator of complementary and alternative medicine and as a skeptical activist. For the latter, he was presented with the Outstanding Skeptics Award by the European Council of Skeptical Organizations at the 6th World Skeptics Congress in Berlin in 2012. And a year before that, the Dutch Skeptics gave him the medal for the Skeptic of the Year. Professor Willem Betts, welcome to the show. Thank you. So it's quite a mouthful even just to list what you've achieved as a skeptic and a scientific investigator. But... Most likely, your work is most prominent in SCAP, uh, the organization to which you are an um, original member, a uh, founding member. How did the idea of SCAP uh, come about back then, and what was the exact role you had in it? Well, it was, well, close to 30 years ago. As a general practitioner, I was shocked by the behavior of some quacks, how they really... Uh, 
embezzled people out of all their money by po- and, and poisoned them. And I was starting to read and write about it. And then I met a, a group of uh, physicists, astrologists, who were also uh, shocked by other signs of, let's say, uh, weird thinking. And we met in a congress, and then we decided to found our skeptics organization. So okay. mostly in the beginning I, I did only the medical part, but let's say I got interested in other aspects of skepticism later. Uh, yeah, but in the medical part, you've done quite an extensive uh, amount of work to find out about alternative medicine. Is that correct? Well, perhaps word is a bit, uh, a bit misleading. I have to confess, as a young doctor, I, in my practice, I started studying homeopathy. Well, I, I got suspicious and disillusioned very soon. And then I got interested in, let's say, bad medicine. Mm. Not only alternative medicine, bad medicine. Okay, so that refers to bad practice within a, a general practice environment? Yeah, and also in a specialized medicine. Okay, okay. I was amazed how, oh, to see how normal doctors got extremely successful by doing really bad medicine. Mm-hmm. And that put me on the track of saying, <laughs> well, what's good, what's bad... Uh, the word evidence-based was not existing in that period. Yeah. But I started reading and reading and trying to find out. When you refer to that period, what period are we talking about? Oh, in the 1970s. Oh, why do you think it was gaining so much ground uh, so quickly back then? Is, is it something that had to do with the new age coming in from the US and, and a mixture of interculturalism or multiculturalism? Or is it something else? Well, not only the hippie movement, but there was a famous May 1968 movement It started in Paris, it also was in Brussels, the anti-authoritarian movement. Oh, yeah. Forbidden to forbid. And let's say my student days, the 1960s, most of our professors were rather authoritarian. Mm-hmm. And so there was a counter-movement. And a few years after that started, people that we used to call just quacks or embezzlers uh, got the holy name of being alternative practitioners. That's quite one of the, let's say, the more unhappy consequences of this anti-authority movement. Has it really changed that kind of attitude on the university professor's part? Well, yes, I'm, I'm certain it changed a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, when I was teaching, that was, uh, let's say, in the, in the late 1980s it started, uh, it was much more democratic, or students were even invited to criticize, to look up for themselves, mm. uh, to uh, think critically about all medicine. Mm. Well, that's how it should be, isn't it? Like any degree, any uh, educational uh, program should should f- most foremost include the critical thinking and give um, opportunities for students to explore and learn on their own, rather than be told what to do. Yeah. In university, there is a transition. It well, perhaps I'm a bit bragging, but <laughs> I was one of the first in my university to start this. That. Uh, stop teaching in the old-fashioned way and uh, more like seminars and working groups oh, yeah. study it but it uh, there was a lot of resistance in the beginning students were not used to examine for themselves and find out they were kind of trained to just not listen and write down did it make them confused at the beginning that you try to use use a different method Yes, there was even some protest. <laughs> uh, On the students' part? Yes, but I can understand this. Uh, because most of our teaching was in the last year of the seven years course to become a doctor. Okay. And so they know that in a few months they must start in practice alone and make decisions. So they had a need to have 
clear guide rules what to do in this situation. So, yeah. in, in a way, say first teach us what to do, and then okay, when we have time, we will find out what is evidence based. So they basically learned something for several years, and uh, at the the end or towards the end of their studies, you told them to question whatever they've been uh, taught. It, yes, in a way, that's <laughs> correct. But yeah, so it's even, no wonder it, it made them confused a bit. <laughs> even if you look at the, let's say, the, the medical curriculum in all countries, mm-hmm. the first years, the professor knows everything. It's anatomy, physiology, yeah. uh, diseases, microbiology. He knows everything. But at the end, when you come nearer and nearer to practice, you have to teach those students how to cope with uncertainties and probabilities. Mm-hmm. It's quite another attitude. And it takes some important switch in their brain to, let's say, step away from ready-made cooking recipes to really balancing the upper, the, the, the several possibilities. Yeah, yeah, but uh, has the focus uh, of it being at the end of the studies uh, shifted towards the beginning of it in in the last couple of decades? Uh, yes, you're talking of one of my my hobbies now. <laughs> uh, medical education in almost all countries has, for centuries, been a monopoly of highly specialized doctors. So, let's say, traditionally, there was a a bit of looking down on the general practitioner as a doctor who did not continue to study. (laughs) And the specialist Mm -hmm. did continue. Now, I'm talking about 30, 40 years ago. A lot has changed. But in all universities I know, there is still some resistance to allow those general practitioners into the practice. But it has been overcome for a lot now. But still the main weight is on highly specialized professors. They can show you, look how difficult my my branch of medicine is. Be impressed. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I think every every one of us who's been a university student knows at least vaguely what what you're talking about yeah. uh it's because it's not only present in uh, in medical studies uh professor Bess, you, you did say um a few minutes ago that um you were interested in homeopathy and you even started uh studying it and then you got disillusioned because obviously there was no evidence to support that homeopathy works have you met any uh, practitioners, the homeopathy practitioners, who have medical degrees like yourself, but who continued uh, practicing homeopathy um, even after discovering that p- there isn't enough evidence there? And if you have, why do you think they stuck to it uh, despite everything uh, else. I mean, I understand when somebody who doesn't have a uh, general understanding of medicine goes into homeopathy and says that the water has power because they want to believe in and makes them feel good inside. But when somebody who has medical background goes into homeopathy, it boggles my mind. Well, it didn't at the time. Now, I'm talking about almost 50 years ago. Mm. When I started as a general practitioner in a small town here, uh, there was a monthly meeting of all the GPs. We came together, uh, had a bite to eat, and usually there was a professor giving an interesting talk about some medicine. And afterwards we had a drink and and chatted about our practice. In that small circle, there were uh, two doctors. One who said, I'm a homeopath. The other said, I'm an acupuncturist. In the the 70s, that was fashion. And they told me, I learned my medicine after university. And those uh, people, they looked very successful, as far as you can judge on the size of their car and whatever, and how long it took to have an appointment with them. Also, I was dissatisfied with my medical education then. To summarize it, everything I learned there, I didn't see. 
and everything I did see in the patients I hadn't learned about which is uh, to translate it in u- university medicine in those days you were taught about very serious diseases that you let's say statistically as a GP you can see one case every 20 years and you have to study that in all details but the more common ailments that you see practically every day there was they didn't talk about it so those doctors convinced me that university medicine was lacking a lot and they were right and then they found a way of having success with people and indeed they were very successful so I wanted to know what they knew so there was a course on weekends in the University of Antwerp where they, you could teach homeop- could learn homeopathy so I went there for more than a year and then let's say very disillusioned I stopped the nonsense How come you think that you saw that this was bogus but a lot of the other doctors did not? Well, I'm quite certain that, let's say, we started with perhaps between 50 and 100 doctors there from the whole county. And after six months, I think more than half already was the, had disappeared. And after one year, the, less than a quarter was still listening. And they were rumbling because they give you something practical, give us some proof, give us something we can try out. Well, there was, there was like reading the Gospels, that course. That was quite crazy. We were all waiting for facts, therapies, and they were just explaining the Gospels, the Gospels of Hanuman. It was a bit oh, crazy. Yeah. I did some, some tests on patients, and the patients were very satisfied. And then afterwards I told one of the teachers what I have done, and he said, you were totally wrong. You took the wrong medicine. He said, who cares? The patient is happy. And that was, <laughs> the, essence. That was the essence of that homeopathy. If the patient is happy, well, they say it works. Was it basically that that led to your disillusionment about homeopathy? Uh, well, yes, it, it should take a lot longer uh, to, to tell you all the anecdotes, but yes. Basically, it was that. And that put me on the trail uh, of I was getting interested how bad doctors can be very successful. Because, mm-hmm. let's say, in the region, there were, well, I will call them bandit doctors. But they really made a lot of money. And some patients really were uh, praising them like gods. Oh, yeah. And I was yeah. why? How is this possible? And then, of course, the same mechanism worked for all those alternative doctors and even non-doctors that I, I met directly or via patients. So that put me on the track. How is it possible that a bad doctor can be so successful? And placebo. Pardon? Yes? Placebo effect, isn't it? Well, quite a lot of it makes them feel good for a while and but it doesn't really get rid of the disease and then uh, there are they... many explanations there are many explanations yeah it's not uh, as simple as that yeah yes uh, that's one of the courses i have been teaching uh, let's say psychosomatic disease interpretation of scientific data misleading in medicine which is quite uh, well for me it was quite exciting to really discover it Uh, in later years, I, I let's say, I worked as an expert for, for an insurance company, and then you hear stories from patients from other doctors, and it confirmed every time that how is it possible that patients are extremely satisfied with somebody who was really ruining their health? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Extraordinary. Uh, something that that uh, really interests me is um, how you started to become a skeptic. I mean, you did tell us something briefly about uh, your disillusionment about homeopathy, but would you say that you had always been, even beforehand, a skeptic in your way of thinking? Probably, yes. It must be part of my personality of being 
Well, my mother called me a rebel. <laughs> uh, not really e enough obedient, uh, a bit anti-authoritarian, perhaps. It was in my genes for a bit. I was very critical. Still am, I think. <laughs> okay, so it's 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 basically a personality trait that developed into um, a full-scale skepticism. Yes, I think that's correct. And some people I know are extremely gullible. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we all know a few of those. <laughs> yeah. How was it that you actually became involved in a skeptical movement, per se? I was kind of uh, acting against what I call, I, I call them the medical bandits, with or without the diploma. Mm. And then I saw a, an invitation for a congress organized by uh, the Belgian, the Flemish organization of us astronomers, mm -hmm. uh, the real stargazers, uh, the scientific ones. Not the astrologers, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I went there and they, they invited uh, uh, several weirdos <laughs> uh, also to do their story. And a man who had the, per, uh, how you call it, perpetual mobile machines and things like that. And well, we had a, had a beer afterwards. And then somebody proposed, you're doing medicine, we are doing, uh, let's say, uh, horoscopes, uh, astrolo astrology. Uh, why shouldn't we join forces? And let's say a few months later, we founded our skeptic society. <laughs> so you basically just got enough. So it was, okay, that's enough is enough. And we have to, to do something about this as a as an organization well yes because i was rather alone mm -hmm. in my let's say struggle and criticism of bad doctors and something very not not strange because it's still today many doctors do not like that you criticize other doctors oh yeah yeah but if those other doctors are practicing just something very silly uh, basically that is totally nonsense uh, why wouldn't they be criticized for that yeah and i would even go further to say that if you don't criticize doctors who are practicing something silly like for example with brzezinskins and people who are who are doing stuff like that it's actually dangerous endangering patients and um you know standing by uh, idly watching somebody harming pe other people so I think criticism is definitely should be present in, in every field, um, med medicine as well. It's not yeah. always black and white, like that Brzezinski guy, well, yes. <laughs> He's in the bandit category as far as I'm concerned. But let's say if you have a local surgeon and you start having questions, isn't he operating too largely, too easily? Uh, there were perhaps other ways to treat that patient then you start asking questions and many of your colleagues said don't do this that's not nice you don't smear a colleague <laughs> I was always a kind of a rebel <laughs> I think it led to great things that you you were always a rebel but you mentioned that uh, there were a few of you founding SCAP how did you get to meet each other? Well, the first time we met, uh, in, 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 there was, a, let's say, a congress, or okay. let's say, a study day, about, uh, let's say, all kinds of fringe science. That's where we met, and then I started telling them about my uh, problems with doctors and, and, and healers. They started telling me about... Uh, horoscopes and earth ray uh, apparatus <laughs> and, and things like that. So it was very interesting on both sides to exchange this. And fringe thinking or weird thinking is not just in medicine. You see it everywhere, but of course medicine is very, very strong still today. So we should do something. Well, it helped us for not feeling alone. Also, mm -hmm. that was one aspect. Then, of course, they, they know a lot. They knew other organizations in other countries, so we could exchange information. Yeah. And then we got the support from the Americans. They already had their psychop. Yeah. 
shortly after we started our Flemish-Belgian organization, they came and helped us with information and prominent speakers. And that was quite a, a good push in, in, on the back. Yeah, I think uh, I think we all agree that organizing events, um, skeptical congresses, conferences, those are very crucial in organizing the whole movement. Because the basic idea of, of us not being alone uh, and to get together with, with other people from around Europe or the world who are like-minded, who think the same way about, about certain topics. That's uplifting, that's inspiring, and it, it makes you feel better. Exactly, and when you're alone, and if you're a skeptic, if you dare to criticize, and let's say, one embezzler, yep. you get tons of mud and dirt over you, and yep. it helps better to resist it when you are not alone. Exactly, I think we all agree. You you founded, uh, co-founded uh, the organization, and it started to grow. How big is SCAP at present day? Well, we have close to approximately 1,000 members. That's impressive. Flanders has a population uh, of 6.5 million. So you can mm-hmm. calculate the percentage and then compare if you like. Just for, for those listeners who don't know what Flanders is. Uh, could you say a few words about that? Well, the the wonderful country called Belgium, uh, it's not so big. It has a total population of 11 million. And let's say the north of Belgium speaks Flemish, which is exactly the same language as Dutch, with yep. a different accent. <laughs> in the south, and the, in the capital, uh, they speak French. And that has been uh, a source of uh, some you know, irritation, political uh, frictions, whatever, but we still live together for 200 years now. <laughs> it was a good school in compromising. Yeah, it is, and it must have been. So you have about a thousand members and lots of activities, is that correct? Well, let's say today most of our activities are on the internet. We have yeah. a discussion forum. We have a website that has hundreds of, I think, very good articles. Now, one of our friends started a, a Facebook page, and it, it really works. It's very, very busy. Uh, we organize uh, study days, congresses, uh, courses now, a summer course. And perhaps very important, since uh, more than 10 or 15 years, the media press, television, radio, they know we exist. And if there is something controversial or a new discovery about, let's say, homeopathy, they phone us and say, what do you think about it? Mm. It, When we first started, they didn't know that we existed. But no, many people know us and lots of people hate us. Mainly (laughs) homeopaths, uh, even Greenpeace, uh, because we're also very critical in that direction. So we're there to criticize. Mm. And they know we exist. And when I see the number of contacts on the Facebook page, it's, it's not so bad. It's really much alive. Yeah, it's uplifting to see that that these kind of ideas really get support online, which is, which is a good thing. Also, Belgium is where the center of the European Union really is, or one of the centers, uh, probably the most uh, well-known center. Uh, you've been involved in uh, several European initiatives as well, one of them being the European Initiative for Comprehensive Research on Complementary and Alternative Medicine. Uh, that was the, the famous or the ill-famed cost before action. The European Union can uh, subsidize for scientists from different countries to meet. Uh, its cost is uh, short for cooperation on science and technology. So some people took an initiative and say we have to uh, examine and publish and propagate alternative medicine. And it started with a professor, let's say, from a Scandinavian country who phoned me anxiously and said, uh, other countries have to also apply for membership in that cost before. 
because it is full of quacks and they want to abuse the European Union to propagate their uh, quackery. So uh, very urgently I also uh, asked my government to send me and then they sent me and the president of the homeopaths. That were, and for several years we came together, several times per year, every time in another European uh, city, and talked about how can we examine uh, alternative medicine. At the first meeting, the chairman was a Swiss businessman who had taken the initiative to start the action, and he was paid a lot by a pharmaceutical company to find out how they could increase their sales if they were going to sell alternative medicine also. So he had a lot of people there already from several countries who were selling or making money on alternative medicine. And when the the Belgian delegation arrived for the first time, uh, they were saying, well, dear friends, how can we propagate alternative medicine? And I asked, shouldn't we look first if it works or not? Which must be something like uh, if somebody in the Israel parliament would propose, let's talk Arab from now on, uh, because it was a real shock. The enemy was inside the project. But uh, in the end, after several years of work, they produced, they published a few books how to examine and how to prove alternative medicine. But each line was a fight between, let's say, the few scientists and the, and all the quack sellers. Mm-hmm. And how how did you manage to close these debates? So what what was the end result of this uh, project? Well, the end result was a book and recommendations. How to examine, how to test uh, medical therapies and how to accept them. Uh, but, uh, you know, after meeting, somebody has taken notes. The secretary make a proposition of a text and then the members can, let's say, correct the text. The text. And that was really sometimes a fight over one word. So it was a huge amount of work with, well, questionable results. Well, yes, questionable results, but I think we prevented the disaster. Okay which has not worked in the European Parliament, mm-hmm. because there they voted disaster. Yeah. You, you know, that famous law that makes homeopathic water, uh, given a statute of medicine, that's a total disaster. But... We should do something about it, yeah. And, and this, this was the thing that led to you getting really involved in the 2011 Great Homeopathy Challenge by the Merseyside Skeptics, the... 1023 homeopathy nothing in it campaign where if if i i remember well you were protesting uh in front of the european parliament with uh, with lots of others the, the, the flemish skeptics a few years before that we had already committed a mass suicide by drinking a whole bottle of homeopathic medicine <laughs> Oh, so it's it's basically your suicidal action, or so-called uh, homeopathic suicidal action, uh, was the the thing that the Merseyside skeptics actually used sometime later. Well, I wouldn't put it in that way, but, but let's say we had an action several years before that, and it has a, had a very big success on radio and television. So a lot of let's say prominent people, artists, uh, doctors deans of medical faculties all came together and all together we drank a whole bottle of homeopathic medicine. They were hoping that we would drop dead or become very ill, but nothing happened. (laughs) (laughs) Killed by by homeopathic um, remedy. That would have been a a headline and a half. (laughs) I must confess, I felt a little bit tipsy because it's pure alcohol. (laughs) <laughs> and that, it was on a Sunday morning. <laughs> note, note to self, <laughs> if run out of alcohol. <laughs> that it was our action. It got a lot of publicity, but of course I sympathized with the, the action that started in Britain and, and all over Europe. So we installed ourselves on the square in front of the European Parliament 
and my university, the pharmacy faculty, they prepared huge bottles of homeopathic remedy, so we could <laughs> give everybody uh, a cup of homeopathic remedy, and it, it, it ended up being a nice party, but there was not so much alcohol in, in that preparation. <laughs> <clears throat> Uh, yeah, but even EXO, the European Council of Skeptical Organizations, issued a statement um, against homeopathy on that day. And we, we did the homeopathic overdose at 10.23. And before that, at 10 o'clock, you held a press conference in front of the European Parliament. Yes, indeed. I did a lot of work writing about the nonsense of homeopathy, about the lack of proof. But it does not impress people. People don't read this kind of documents. So I'm I'm pleading now, yeah. years, we should take legal actions based on consumer fraud, misleading mm -hmm. consumers, That's making a very good point. promises. Mm -hmm. Homeopaths don't read scientific publications. Politicians are so easily fooled. The homeopaths go there, they give them a long list and say, you have a hundred proofs, scientific proof that it works. If you start analyzing them, more than half say it doesn't work. So it does not work that way. But we have to go to the courts, to consumer protection, and say, what they are selling you is misleading, it's fraud. We have very good European laws against consumer fraud. And we have very good European laws, directives, uh, to protect people from bad medicine. But then that stupid European Parliament <laughs> made a law giving an exception for homeopathic drops or, or pills, which is a terrible scandal. And that law is being abused and even not followed. I think the action should be there. As our American counterparts have done, there was a consumer, uh, how you call it, action against that big French homeopathy firm who sells the anti-flu uh, medication, and they paid millions of dollars for consumer fraud. We should do it here too. Yeah, Americans are known for running big trials and big lawsuits. I think Europe is not as uh, as good at, at in doing that, and also, like you said if there is some sort of uh, protection for the homeopathic remedies, that might be the problem. Well, there is a protection in the medical laws, but there is also a contradiction with consumer protection laws. I think our skeptic organizations, and certainly on a European level, we should try to seduce some lawyers to become members and help us. Mm, very good idea. The doctors and the scientists have done their work. Even a few weeks ago, in Australia, once again, they published homeopathy is just a placebo, and nobody is impressed. But if we can ask for money in damnation of those homeopathic firms who sell products with nothing in it, that could work. Let's get, grab them where it hurts, the money. It's a very important thing that you mention here about European Parliament. And uh, we recently talked to uh, Andrew Copson, who's the chief executive of the British Humanist Association and uh, one of the leaders of the European Humanists as well. And we talked about lobbying. And there is virtually no lobbying whatsoever on the skeptics part humanists are are quite good at lobbying on a european level but we are not so we should really change that and i think if s someone can be uh looked upon as an authority uh in, in that field is you um, yeah but let's say uh, my age and my health are not uh, so good anymore but I'll, I'll give you a very short story i think three years ago members of the Flemish skeptics, we were introduced, I don't say how, uh, into the European Parliament, the building, and we visited as many members as we could of the Health Commission to tell them, please, we would like to tell you about the scientific point of view. 
And some of those representatives said, my God, that's, that's very good, because we are bombarded almost daily by lobbyists for the alternative medicine lobby and the supplements lobby. And it's so refreshing to hear another voice. Yeah. But to be a lobbyist is not simple. You Because, let's say, after a few hours, they found out that we were there and we were, let's say, pushed out of the building. You have to get an official status of lobbyist. And, well, it's... Uh, an intensive job uh, it takes a lot of time and, and, and influence but your idea of perhaps joining with the humanist is a good idea we have to make our voice heard there is a commission on health in the European Parliament we should pay visits to those people mm-hmm. they really want it yeah that's we, we do agree that something really has to be done and we should act on what we would like to achieve, and not just, yeah, I'm. Uh, it's gonna be. I'm. I'm gonna be a bit tough in my in my uh, choice of words, but we we keep whining about stuff happening, but we we don't really act on it. Exactly, and we keep publishing in, let's say, scientific journals or skeptic journals, and they don't care. They're quite amused by it. So, yeah. uh, the, the fanatics has made another article. The Australian fanatics have made another study. But they are fanatics, don't believe them. So, yes, we should go on the political and the legal path. That's the way to uh, have results. The way the Americans did. But there are some mm-hmm. things happening in, in the UK at the moment, which is quite interesting, where they're challenging the NHS about funding homeopathy. So, so do you think that's an example that we could follow in other countries? Uh, yes, but the, it could be, but the situation uh, in other countries is different. The health insurance works in a different way. And that's the problem. As many countries as, as we have, as many different systems. Let's say in Belgium, homeopathy is not reimbursed in the normal health insurance. But mm-hmm. then, well, okay, well, that, that's a detail for you. But then all those uh, insurance companies, mutualities we call them, they had a voluntary supplementary insurance that you could voluntarily take. And they managed politically that everybody, every citizen, now is obliged to pay for those voluntary supplements. Oh. Which mm-hmm. is scandal. So we are subsidizing homeopathy and chiropractic and so on. So also somebody should uh, look in the laws and see how this is... Uh, contradictory to consumer protection how they can oblige you to pay for something you don't want it's important to have lawyers on board with uh, us um, in the skeptical movement so if anyone knows a lawyer who's especially who's specializing in uh, medical law preferably on a european level please let them know that we need them exactly I tried to introduce a lawyer, not my own son, in our skeptic movement, but yeah, okay, he's still young, he has other uh, problems and, and uh, work. But I, I, you just gave me an idea. In all Belgian universities, there is at least one professor who teaches medical law. Oh yeah, exactly, and that, that must be the case in universities in every country. Yes, so perhaps we should approach those persons and see if they are ready to help us. But it is a mix between medical law and also consumer protection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's sometimes weird. One anecdote, but perhaps it, it will sound familiar for you. We have a, a ministry, let's say, for small businesses. And if people are unemployed and they want to follow a course to, to learn a new job, the government subsidizes it with, uh, you call it, uh, education checks. Mm-hmm. And then we discovered that some quack schools are recognized to accept those education checks. So we, we are uh, pushing politicians to ask political questions in the parliament about it. How is it possible that the government pays you to become, let's say, a quack? Well, Interesting. Not- Perhaps you, other countries, they could also look 
if there are not some subsidizing for training, for re-employment, also being cashed in by quack schools. And the Ministry of Economy, let's say, for the small businesses said, yes, but we are not schooled, uh, authorized to judge if a course is science-based or not, which is quite amusing. But, okay, I'm, perhaps I'm, I'm, I'm riding the same horse again. I think science has already said its last word about those quacks. Now yeah. we have to do it with politics and with lawyers. If not, with, we can continue for a hundred years. It will not make a difference. Yeah, um, it's very important to have uh, all those uh, blogs and uh, science education materials out there to educate the general public. Because any kind of lobbying, any kind of political pushing for ideas and truth and uh, legislative changes has to be backed up by the support of the public in a way. So educating the public through blogs, videos, uh, podcasts, uh, whatever means we have, it's very important, but it's not enough. Uh, yes, it's in, uh, how to influence politicians. In our country, there was a very crazy law that an alternative medicine can ask for official recognition. Then our previous Minister of Health, well, I'll have to be careful about politics, but she thought that by really pushing the recognition of homeopaths and, and, and osteopaths, that she would gain votes. Mm. Luckily, no. After many, many, many years, for the first time, Belgium has a doctor as Minister of Health and somebody who thinks scientifically. So we have lots of hope now. Ah, great. Very good. And what are the areas where you see a huge amount of work needed in the sense that those are real challenges for skeptics in, in Belgium? Well, medicine, of course, is is my uh, my hobby. It's my, my job. Yes, we must publish uh, about bad medicine. And I think a, a branch that is starting to bloom is what I call quack machines. There really is an invasion. They're made in ex-East Germany and made in China. It's a machine, you put your hand on it and it makes a diagnosis and you push another button and it cures you. Really a booming business now. And they're really pushing very, very hard. It's also a kind of vibrating mattress, small mattress that becomes hot and it cures everything. And it costs about, uh, let's say, a few thousand euros, while you can buy the same thing in the supermarkets for, let's say, 60, 70 euros. Oh yeah, that's outrageous. <laughs> and they make false promises. I think, uh, scientifically, we had our say, we have our documentation. It is alternative because it doesn't work, because it doesn't have proof. We should stop the, let's say, the, the don't give those propagandists a free ride. But that's uh, very unpleasant because they bite back. If you dare to say you are selling a quack machine or a quack product, they really bite back very mean. And they have the money on their side. Exactly. And they make a lot of money. I heard from some lawyers, uh, <laughs> there were two quack sellers attacking each other in courts. The money they make by it producing, uh, well, let's say, the, the basic uh, substances cost almost nothing, and they sell it for a fortune. It's incredible how big a fortune they make on those quack products and herbal medicines and, and supplements. You can get rich in, in less than a year if you do it well. And that means the floor is really uneven. Uh, for this for this fight that, that that we are trying to establish here, because uh, those on the side of alternative medicine and quackery they make a lot of money out of it. So this is what they do for a living, and there are very few people in the skeptical movement who can really devote all their time to this kind of activism and to do something against these quackeries. Correct. Uh, we also do it in our spare time with where our, our own money and time that we invest in it. Yeah. That's quite correct. And even to make matters more complicated, 
in our country certainly, but I'm sure in other countries it's the same. For some reason, the Green parties love quacks, and they mm. support them. Yeah, it's the same in Sweden. We see that mm-hmm. all over. Yeah, I think it, it could be a global thing. Well-sounding ideas that are easy sells for the general public. I think the only thing that is usually quite widely accepted by uh, the Green parties is uh, global warming. That they are probably not global warming deniers, but but other than that, sometimes it's just full of pseudoscience, what they're proposing and what they're, they're really pushing for. If they just hear the word industry, they... Uh become venomous and extremely critical and skeptical. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you say the magic word natural, they put their brain on zero and they believe everything, which is quite amusing, also frightening. And, of course, the, the genetically modified uh, uh, plants and things like that, I think also there they, they are even dangerous, the green parties, because they are acting against life-saving crops. And planting silly ideas and the opposite of scientific and critical thinking into people's minds. Ha- having said everything that you you said, uh, Professor Bess, and discussed various aspects, uh, do, you look, uh, do you look in the future with a positive outlook or a negative one? Do you think that the common sense, the science and the reason will prevail? Or are we just all doomed and because it pays to, you know, cheat people into buying all these alternative things, it's just going to get worse. What, what do, you th- do you think we, we have a hope, uh, or is it all bad? I think it is a, will be a continuing fight. I don't like the word fight, let's say, providing information. Or it was James Randi who said, this is like sitting in bed with one of those small plastic ducks. The moment you take your hand away, plop, and there it is again. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Good imagery, yeah. The, the, the people will be cheated. The, oh, the Romans already said it. Mundus de kipi vult. The people want to be cheated. And I think it was also Barham who said, uh, if every uh, second uh, a stupid man is born and every minute somebody is born who will take advantage of it. No, so we cannot eradicate it. We should not become a dictatorship, but we can give information and hope that our politicians at least will protect the populations uh, against the, the more frightening uh, bandits. But they're not all bandits. Eh? Many of them are just naive. Mm. Even idealists, those therapists and the salesmen, so, let's not leave them alone. Keep fighting the good fight. <laughs> yeah, keep uh, putting your hand on the little plastic duck. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Let's say those, those superstitions or uh, gullibilities will never disappear. So, the, no unemployment for skeptics. <laughs> That's absolutely true. Well, I'm afraid this wraps up our interview. No, so- thank you very much. I hope it's useful for you. Well, I'm sure it will be. Uh, and it was great fun talking to you. Professor Willem Betts, thanks very much for your time and the nice conversation we had here. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And thank you. You're welcome. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Goodbye. So, I don't know about you guys. It was uplifting for me to talk to Willem Betts. Uh, Wim Betts, as some people call him. And he said quite a few things that we should take to heart um i mean all skeptics around europe i think a lot of a lot of it isn't being sort of discussed enough you know we need to act uh we've got enough evidence enough work that was done by good scientists and etc let's go european skeptics kick some ass yeah (laughs) indeed and uh on that note i think we should uh close this show and uh, hope to <laughs> go go kick some ass. So thank you very much, Yelena. Thank you very thank much, you, Ponto. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Likewise. So talk to you again pretty soon. All right. Bye-bye. 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 
This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu, and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. Yeah. Hey, son, I'll help. <laughs> okay. Hey, son, I'll help. <laughs> nice. Once more. Hey, son, I'll help. On every ab- Sorry. <laughs> on- Hey. Sorry, I'm not gonna laugh. Oh, great. On- <laughs> this, is how, this is how it goes all the time. Sorry. Not all the time. Okay. Sorry, so, it's not all the time. It's not all the time. Yeah, almost all the time.